country has foundational documents that are supposed to guide our overall governance. Now, the Constitution was written in 1787 and ratified in 1788. And according to the United States Senate website, the United States Constitution is the world's longest surviving written charter of government. Now, this is not a history lesson, nor is it a political discussion. Uh, my point is that these documents were set up to ensure some of the original guiding principles of our nation and that they would these principles would remain intact. And yet there are different ways of interpreting these documents, and we can see that clearly in our society, we can see it clearly in our government, and we can see it clearly in our uh, judicial system. Well, documents... And the interpretation of those documents may change from uh, age to age because there are variations and in ways they're interpreted. There are some things that remain inalterable. The Bible tells us in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. And in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, this very simple statement that we, we have resonating through our minds because it is comforting to us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Inalterable. Now I had you turn to Romans chapter 8 because that is our text of study. But if you hold your hand there and take a look also at Psalm 89, the 89th Psalm, we want to see something in the 89th Psalm that will help to set the stage for our final message in Romans chapter 8. The 89th Psalm, God has covenanted, made promises to do certain things. And whatever God covenants to do is a guarantee. It's certain. And the reason that it's certain is because it's based upon his own character. What God says, he does. Because who God tells us he is, he is. The 89th Psalm, take a look beginning in verse 20. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And my name shall, uh, shall his horn, or in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him. What is the next word? My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. Why, why is this? Whatever God promises shall come to pass. And two times in this passage, verse 24 and verse 28, the Hebrew word chesed comes forth, uh, is used to, to demonstrate God's steadfast covenant loyalty or his steadfast sturdy love. The fact that God promises this, my servant David, this steadfast love will always reside upon him, will always carry him through because I have guaranteed it. The steadfast love of God for David is dependent not upon David, not upon David's countrymen, not upon David's adversaries. God's steadfast love for David depends upon God's character himself. This is glorious to behold. To know that I, the Lord, do not change. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that when God makes a promise to us, we can count on it no matter what comes into our lives. These are assurances that our souls need. 
Because you know, in the course of our lives, we face so many adversaries. Many times those adversaries arise from within ourselves. And those adversaries want to tell us a different story about God. They want to paint a different picture about God. My circumstances want, they cry out for me to say, God, no, you, you, you aren't coming through like you told me you would. My circumstances want to do this. These adversaries from outside want to do this. But God's word, God's spirit who dwells within me, these are steadfast, sturdy reminders that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. It's an inalterable reality. And what we're studying this morning is about God's steadfast love. Take a look, please, back in Romans chapter 8. God's steadfast love. Our passage this morning proclaims that God has an unshakable love for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And as we think and meditate through this passage this morning, we want to see the triumph of God through his steadfast love. Take a look, beginning in verse 35, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we study through and meditate through these glorious verses on the triumph of God and His steadfast love, we will see it under these three headings. God's steadfast love is not severed by trauma, sickness, or poverty. We will also notice that God's steadfast love transforms us into conquerors. And finally, we'll see that God's steadfast love will always be under attack. But believers need not fear. If you know Christ as your Savior, while the concept that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This concept will be under attack in our lives, but we need not fear, for God has promised His children that He eternally loves us. So, first of all, God's steadfast love is not severed by trauma, sickness, or poverty. You see it in verses 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. These pressures and trials and anxieties and traumas can mount up and wear us down. We can be worn down. Tribulation, he starts with. This can be any manner of challenge from relationships breaking to jobs being lost. This can range from financial ruins to health crises. The word used here to convey suffering is to convey it in the widest of scopes. This is all the things that we could face. Tribulations. Tri tribulations inside. 
tribulations outside. So it's a very wide and encompassing term. He moves on and he says, distress. Shall, shall distress? So we move from a, a wide scope to a very narrow scope. And the reason that I say that is this word distress in the Greek gives a picture of a narrow place. It's as if all these circumstances that are of a wide array are crashing down upon me and I feel as though I have nowhere, nowhere to go. I only have this one channel. I've been pressed into a very difficult place. There's nowhere to go. He uses the word persecution. Now we have an understanding of that word persecution. Persecution can be a form of ridicule or someone undermines who we are, the one that we believe. It can be a form of having our relationship with God hampered or restricted. Many believers over the course of time have endured real persecution that we, I don't expect, none of us have really faced to this point. Oh, someone might think we're weird. They might think we're off our rocker. They might think that we're gullible or whatever else they might think. That's fine. But there are people that have endured real persecution to the point of losing their lives. Or, I suppose, much worse, having their lives maintained while enduring harsh, terrible treatment. Persecution. Should persecution make me wander from understanding that God loves me? Should someone's criticism of me? Criticism of my God? Criticism of the Bible? Should that cause me to say, oh, I wonder if God loves me? Or, how about if we're one of those imprisoned? starving, left with nothing. Should that tell me? Oh, I thought that God was a God of blessing and only good things happen to those that know him. That's not the Bible that I read. Should persecution cause me to say God has forsaken me? The answer to that question is absolutely not. He moves on from distress to famine. This is of having a limited food supply. Our, our, our resources have, have, have been exhausted. There's nothing left. Famine. There's no crops in the field. There's no food in the cupboard. No more meat to eat. Nothing. There's nothing left. Famine. Oh Lord, I thought you were going to take care, care of me. In fact, I even know that Paul said, with food and raiment, let us be content. Well, what should I do if I don't have food and raiment? Well, of course, be uncontent. Discontent. No. No, God loves me. God loves me whether I'm in times of famine or distress or even nakedness. Now, we're not talking about intentional nakedness. We're not talking about some competition where someone says, hey, if you give me this so much money, I'll let you run you know, here. Yeah, nakedness. These conversations happen among people. Who would think such a thing? Not that kind of nakedness. We're talking about someone that has no resources and can't cover themselves. Not someone willing to fulfill some, some uh, strange scenario. We're talking about real distress. Where we have nothing left. Tattered, torn clothing. Should that make me say, oh, where's God's love now? Paul would say, no, no, no. You want to know why Paul would say that? Because God has made a promise. And God's promise is sure. No matter what we feel, no matter what we see, no matter what we hear, no matter what we experience, God's love is real and enduring. This is truth. He goes on and talks about danger and sword. This is a fearful condition. Surrounded by adversaries hunting us down. This is, this is being afraid for the, the very breath you take. Should this make me wonder, God, do you love me? What shall separate us from the love of God? Any of these things? No. There are external pressures. There is internal exasperation we sometimes will experience 
weariness, and a sense that there's nowhere else to go. There are dangers, there's hunger, there's places and times where we have no cover. He's describing a dire situation. And when all of these stresses in life pile up one on top of the other, your flesh, your flesh, that's you, your flesh, may start to declare that God has neglected you. And you and I, in those circumstances where our flesh might start to speak these thoughts into our minds, we must remember that God's love never stops. His love is inexhaustible. Paul quotes from Psalm 44 in the midst of this discussion. As he comes to verse 36, he says, As it is written, or as it stands written, for your sake. What does he mean? On behalf of the Lord. Because we are those that are God's. We are God's possession. We belong to Him. Because we are God's possession. He says, we are being, what does it say? Killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, we don't have time to do a full exposition on Psalm 44, but I do want to turn there, and I want to give you a little flavor of it. Psalm 44, please. This is where Paul's quotation comes from. And he's using this to illustrate his point that nothing separates us from God's love. In Psalm 44, in the first six verses, there is a discussion of Israel being flourished by God's grace, God's blessing of Israel because of God's grace. In the first six verses, then in verses 7 through 16, Israel suffered adversity in accordance with God's plan. Israel suffered adversity in accordance with God's plan. And then in verses 17 through 21, there's a recounting by the sons of Korah, those that are the penmen of this psalm. Israel's adversity in this situation being discussed was not due to their sin. Now there are other times that Israel suffered as a result of their sin. God had warned them and God came through on His promise to uh, remove his hand of blessing upon them because of their sin. In this instance, in accordance with the inspired word, it was not due to their sin that they were experiencing this difficulty. Then in the verse 22, we see that Israel suffered adversity for the Lord's sake. That's what we're seeing in Psalm, uh, excuse me, in uh, Romans chapter eight. And then the psalm concludes in verses 23 through 26. The psalmist pleads for God's rescue. So. That's just a little flavor of Psalm 44. God's blessing. The adversity that arose. The adversity was not because of Israel's sin. God's, it was for God's sake that they suffered. And then there's this pleading for God to rescue. Let's take a, a little sampling. Look at verse 18. The psalmist says, Our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. In other words, we're experiencing this difficulty not because of our sin. We're, we're following you. Look down at verse, verses 20 and 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to the, a foreign God, would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. This again is affirming that they're experiencing difficulty not because they sinned, but because God had some kind of a plan. There's a plan. Verse 22. For yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded by others as sheep to be slaughtered. Oh, we'll get them. And so we see this sense of persecution, danger, nakedness, peril, and sword that's coming upon this group of people. And the psalmist is saying that God had blessed us in the past, but now this is a different plan, a different plan altogether. We're suffering, but it's not because of sin. God has a plan. 
God intends this for some reason. We don't understand it, but it's for your sake that we're being killed all the day long. And they rightly say, God, please, please help. There's nothing wrong with begging the Lord to help you. It's what Paul did when he was suffering his infirmity in the flesh. Remember, three times he sought the Lord to deliver him. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes God says, yes. Sometimes he says, no. But it's always in accordance with his plan. And it's always for our good. Take a look at verses 23 and following as we see the plea for help, plea for rescue. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever! Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our bellies cling to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love. And just what he Records here is what Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 8, that we're facing all these things and they do not negate the reality and the steadfastness, the continuance, the promise of God's enduring love. Just because our circumstances are not what we hoped and dreamed, just because we're not living in comfort as we wish, does not mean that God doesn't love us. God's love endures. You know, I found this statement from Derek Kidner to be very encouraging, and I hope it will be encouraging to you. Listen carefully to his words. The psalm does not develop it, but it implies the revolutionary thought, listen carefully to this part, that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. Suffering may be the price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. We call that a reset of your thinking. Oh, maybe my lack is not because God is withholding for the sake of punishment, but maybe my lack is that I live in a broken, sin-cursed world and that this world is not supposed to be where my treasures lie. It might, in fact, be a very helpful thing that God is trying to get me to look away from here and look up to Him. The only way that our souls are truly satisfied are in Him. And when we find our satisfaction here on this level, we find our satisfactions coming and going. Oh, they satisfy, and then, then they don't. And sometimes with the withdrawal of those things, my affection turns where it can be sustained and God gives me this treasure. Your mind and your emotions may declare that God has forsaken you. You might come to the conclusion that God has withheld his blessing, but I want to remind you to look back to what God has recorded. What does God say? And I want to remind you by looking at what he says. Take a look, please, at Hebrews 13. Now these words, I assume, are not new to you, but instead they're words that you have read, thought about, perhaps even memorized. Look, please, at Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, where God says through the author of Hebrews, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Well, here we are in Romans chapter 8, and there's peril and sword and persecution and distress and tribulation and famine and nakedness. All these things. And we say, does this mean that God has removed his love? And God has told us, he'll never leave us. 
he'll never forsake us. And our faith response is, the Lord is my helper? How can I fear what these things can do to me? He's with me. In the good, and he's with me in the difficult. This is what God's word tells us. Do you believe it? Do you believe it when everything seems to be crumbling around you? Do you believe it when you get bad news after bad news after bad news? When the difficulty endures, not for a week, not for a month, not for a year, but for a decade. Do you still believe it? That I'll never leave you or forsake you? Well, I'd say we have to read this truth. We have to rehearse this truth. We have to meditate, mull on this truth. And sometimes, my friend, we might even have to pray this truth. God, I know what your word says. I know what says it here in Hebrews chapter 13. I know it says it. I don't feel it right now. I feel forsaken. That's what the psalmist said. God, rouse yourself. Awake. Save me. Why, do I, why does it have to constantly feel like I've been forsaken? He's praying it. He's praying this truth. God, I need to sense the reality of what your word says. You see, it's really great. You and I should read God's Word. We should read it every day. It's really great. You and I should study God's Word. And we should study it as often as we can. We should memorize God's Word. That's, that's fantastic. Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. This is good. We should mull it over. But all of that will do you nothing if you don't believe You've heard the expression, oh, he talks a good game. Yeah, but what about when the rubber meets the road? What about when, it, when all the stakes are high and all the chips have got to go to the middle of the table? I know, I just used a gambling reference. Everything's in, all in. What about then? Do you believe God then? We have to. nothing else to hold on to. Read it. Rehearse it. Mull it. Pray it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? No one. Nothing. How do I apply this on Monday morning? What difference does this make? Well, my friend, you may have a background in which you've experienced life-altering trauma. Yes, you have been influenced by this. You have certain automatic responses. That's true. But you have been made a new creation in Christ. And you have experienced a new love. And you must you must be made aware that nothing can turn the faucet of God's love off. Oh, I've had enough of you. I've come to the end of my rope. Friends, these are human things. Our God is not human. He is transcendent, eternal. No evidence could ever mount up to contradict God's declaration of undying love. He not only recorded it in his word, he delivered it in his son. It's not just words on a page. It's been fleshed out because the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And there were people there that beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have battle scars. 
but so does our Savior. Do you know that? He has battle scars. Here. Here. Through his feet. Battle scars. Did God forsake him? We know the answer to that. In his humanness, remember, he cried out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? All the while he knew, because he declares, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. After he said, it is finished. He has the battle scars too. And he did it with joy because of the eternal prize of redeeming, ready? Weak and wounded sinners. God's love endures. Head back to Romans chapter 8. God's steadfast love is not severed by trauma, sickness, or poverty. Secondly, God's steadfast love transforms us into conquerors. Look at verse 37. He writes, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I want to pay close attention to how He utters these things. In all these things, not despite all these things, in all these things. God uses these things to make us something that we are not. He says, we are more than conquerors. What a contrast this is from chapter 7. Chapter 7, oh, I want to do this and I do that and I don't want to do that and I do it. It's just a mess in ourselves. We're wretched and in need of deliverance, Romans 7.24. But as the redeemed, we are declared to be completely victorious. And the concept is completely and overwhelmingly victorious. We're not, we're not just making it. We're not just going to hang on by the, 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 the skin of our teeth. We're not just going to crawl our way to the finish line with gasping for breath. In all these three things, what is it? Being slaughtered. In all these things, What? Being killed day in and day out. With what? Famine and distress and, and nakedness and, and peril. Distress, difficulty, sword, pain. In all these things, God is making us more than overabundantly victoriously conquerors. This is what he does. How? Well, because I'm really smart. And I learned the lesson after the first time I learned it. Man, if it's just about me figuring it out, I'm in big, big trouble. Because I'm pretty dumb. And I suspect, since you bear the light flesh that I bear, you are pretty dumb as well. Happy Sunday. It says that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Amen. Through Him who loved us. And we're not just talking about His actions. That would be through what, how He loved us. We're talking about the very nature and character of God and the character of our Savior that is in the process of transforming us from defeated, slaves, debtors into overwhelmingly conquering victors. Well, in what way? God, through His constant love, is continually transforming us. And this text, Romans chapter 8, tells us in numerous ways how this takes place. He takes us from condemned to embraced. He takes us from being in the flesh to being in the Spirit. He takes us from being slaves 
two, meaning sons. He takes us from being debtors. I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go. To heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. What a change. From suffering to glory. And by implication, at the very least, from defeated to overwhelming victors. God is at work transforming us. I want to draw your attention to 1 Thessalonians 5. You may not have time to get there by the time I start reading because our time is getting toward its end. It's not there yet. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God is at work transforming us. This is what he does. And he does it in every conceivable way. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the Bible says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, completely. And may your whole spirit and your whole soul and your whole body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. He will do it. We have been made more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He's at work changing us, making us new. What does God enable us to overcome? Now, we don't have time to turn to some of these passages that I'd love to turn to in the context of Romans chapter 8, the tribulations that are in this life. In 1 John chapter 2, he talks about the fact that we have uh, become uh, overcomers You know what he says? Of the evil one. Overcomers of the evil one. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 21, we are able to overcome evil with good. Oh man, our world is not so merciful nor gracious. When someone does something evil, I think, ah yes, I too shall do something evil. This will make it better. You have misharmed, you have harmed me in some way. I will harm you in some way. This will make it better. If one steps back, it's very obvious. When you add harm to harm, you're making things worse. Our world is not so gracious. But God enables us to respond to evil, not by spreading more of it, but by spreading the unexpected pattern of good and truth and love. Overcome evil with good. This is what God does. He's transforming us. How do we overcome these things? It's through him who loved us in Romans chapter 8, right? In, in uh, 1 John chapter 5, it's through faith. In 1 John chapter 4, it's greater is he who is in you than he who was in the world. How, do we, how are we transformed? How are we changed? It's through him who loves us. Well, what do we take from these things? We have natural inclinations and we have patterns that our flesh builds up. Addiction, addiction does not need to rule over us. We need the power of God to break those chains. Passions, lusts, do not need to rule over us. We have the power of a transforming God residing within us. Hate and anger do not need to rule over us. We can be overwhelmingly victorious because the power of God resides within us. The Spirit of God who dwells within us can give us peace and patience and love even for those who try to harm us. But be assured that this does not come of our own natural resources. It only comes through Him who loved us. He can transform us. 
We are the children of God and he is transforming us into victors. Well, we come to the end of this passage back in Romans chapter 8 and a third concept that God's transforming love is doing. God's steadfast love will always be under attack, but believers need not fear. We mentioned this already earlier that this was coming. Look at verses 38 and 39. For I am, what is the next word? Sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other uh, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, I, I'd say there's a natural question that should come into our minds in reading verses 35 to 39. There's a list in verses 30, verse 35 and then the implication in verse 36 and then he lists another set in verses 38 and 39. What is, is it that distinguishes verses 35 and 36 from verses 38 and 39? And the way that I see it, and it's not, you know, not dogmatically seeing this, but in verse 35, these are things that are happening to us. Happening to us in verse 35. And in verse 38 and 39, there's a little bit more of an emphasis upon the ones trying to do it. It's almost as if you can say, okay, here are problems that we face in verse 35, and in verses 38 and 39, these are the people who are trying to bring the problems. These are the things, the entities that are trying to bring the problems. I'll illustrate it this way. Uh, a few years back, an elderly lady accidentally hit me while I was riding my motorcycle. I didn't like it. At all. But I did recognize that she had been losing her faculties and she didn't do it on purpose. If that situation were redone and it was some guy in her place and he saw me and intentionally ran me over, I think I would have a struggle not being resentful, angry, and bitter toward him because he became the hunter. Well, something happens to you or someone does something to you. You see the difference? You know, I have a little buddy in the church, his name is Josh. And, you know, when I come by, a lot of times he's, he shoots the little Spider-Man's webs at me to try to get me all stuck. So then I try to get stuck. And sometimes I say, ah, I have invincibility mode right now and it doesn't stick to me. Fine, do that all day. However, if my next door neighbor comes over and ties me up and gives me a beat down, I might have a problem, right? I might have a problem not being angry and, and exacting revenge. Because there's a hunter Someone's trying to harm you. You see the difference? Oh, I'm experiencing famine. I'm experiencing distress. I'm experiencing all these things. Now I know who it is. See the difference? These hunters are trying to bring us to the conclusion that God doesn't love us. Who are these hunters? Well, it's death and life and angels and rulers Things that we see in this present time. Things that are still to come. Powers. These are angelic, demonic, things that are high, things that are low, in case we didn't catch it all, whatever else is in creation, whatever else that might be hunting you. He really covers the whole gamut. These hunters want to separate us from God's love. This is what Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like we separate you from your faith. Like Satan, these hunters are attacking our understanding of God's commitment to us. They're trying to dismantle our confidence that God is loving and kind and good. Things like sudden deaths can make people bitterly angry. I didn't have time to say goodbye. I didn't expect this. Life with trauma or limitations can make people resent God or question his wisdom and goodness. Demonic beings trying to fulfill Satan's agenda want to use anything and everything to separate us from the love of God. 
Have you ever been disenchanted with the way things are? I had different expectations. Well, the whole spectrum of life and everything we can see conspire together to convince us that God is not who he declares himself to be. But my friend, I'm trying to get a good gaze on each one of you. My friend, God's word declares something different. God's word makes a promise. For everyone that knows Jesus as their Savior, that it doesn't matter what you face. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what voices are speaking in your head. There is something true about him that cannot be taken away. And that is this. He loves you with an undying, unflinching, immovable, eternal love. This is how Paul concludes Romans chapter 8. We enter into Romans chapter 8 on the heels of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is like, oh, I, I, this is, I've got this problem, this problem, this problem. I, 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 I have discovered the problem. Who will deliver me? I know. I know who will deliver me. Christ will deliver me. In Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation. Why? If you're in Christ Jesus, he's taken that condemnation for you. I no longer reside simply in the flesh. I have the Spirit of God. God's Spirit works and leads me and convinces me that God is my Father. That I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer a debtor to sin. I don't have to reside in sin. He can put off the deeds of the body. In fact, I, I, I have this, this glorious future that awaits, but not without suffering. The suffering is for the now. The glory is for later. What is all this suffering about? God is changing us. He is making us like His Son. And one day we'll be in His presence. All the suffering will be gone and it will be turned into greater glory than had we never experienced the suffering. In the meantime, don't question whether God is for you. And if God is for you, whatever arises from outside, or whatever arises from within, nothing can compete with Him. He's God, and there is no one else. You have nothing to fear. Condemnation? No! Separation from God's love? Never! Why? Because God endures and His love is sure. It's His promise. His promise. And what He says, He does. And if He says, I love you, that doesn't mean it's going to stop tomorrow. Some of you have experienced someone stopping loving you. And it's one of the worst things you've ever experienced. It's like, how can this be? You said, I love you. And now you don't. What's wrong with this? It's not the way it's supposed to be. You'll never experience that from God. Nothing. No one. Not a, not a person. Not a thing can remove God's love from you. If, if you know him. If you've recognized yourself to be a sinner. Recognize the consequence of your sin. You say, oh God, I don't know what to do with this. I don't want this. You turn. And you've heard the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I turn from my sin and I turn to Christ and I say, please, save me. Save me. And the Bible tells us that when we come to Him, He'll never turn us back. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you've called upon the name of the Lord, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he cries out, God is your Father. God is your Father. And you're following the Spirit. He leads us. Nobody on this earth, nobody from above this earth, nobody from below this earth, that should ever be able to make you question whether God loves you. His love endures because he endures. Well, I had a lot more to say, 
But that's all we have time for. I do want to say this. What is this passage telling me to do? Everyone wants you, tell me what to do, tell me what to do, make it applicable. This passage is not telling you to do something. This passage is telling you about God. And that's the truth about most passages you come encounter with. Most of the passages that you're going to come encounter with is going to be God telling you who you are. That's not good. And who he is. And he's glorious. And it engenders and evokes love, passion, reverence, worship, and those that seek to follow him. But this passage does help us tomorrow morning when we wake up. And I'll give you three ways it does that. No matter what you face, whatever pain you experience, this truth remains for those who have trusted Jesus Christ. God's love cannot be taken from you. Second, the more difficult the challenge, the more abundant God's supply of grace that results in transforming us into overwhelming victors. Remember, these are battle scars. And thirdly, while we have circumstances or hunters trying to prove to us that God does not love us, there is no one and no thing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. His love endures. He is a steadfast love. Let's pray together. Father, your word is good because you are good. I thank you for encouraging us that we have a shelter in the storm and that we have a rock upon which we can place our feet and no matter what blows around us, it is well with our soul. You are enough. Help us now as we conclude our time singing. Help us to truly worship you as we sing. Please drive the truth of your word deeply into our being that you might enable us to trust you and love you and worship you more heartily than yesterday. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.